If you think you know the story behind the Amityville horror, not so fast. Does this sound familiar? At 3.15 a.m. on November 13, 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. grabbed a 35 caliber rifle and shot his father and mother twice in their bed. Then he shot his brothers, Mark and John. They were 11 and 9 years old. Next, he shot his sister, Allison. She was 13. Then he went up to the third floor and shot his other sister, Dawn. She was 18. All six victims were found lying face down in their beds with their arms outstretched. Autopsy reports showed that the bodies weren't moved. There were no sedatives found in their systems, and there was no evidence that any of them tried to escape. When Ronnie DeFeo Jr. was arrested for the murders the next night, he said voices in the house made him do it. About 13 months after the murders, the Lutz family bought the house from Ronnie at a bargain basement price. They moved in on December 18th, 1975, but they only lasted 28 days. They fled on January 14th, 1976, saying the house was haunted. But was it all a lie? Starting with who actually murdered the DeFeo family in 1974, all the way to those horrifying tales of a demon-possessed house on Ocean Avenue in Amityville, Long Island, New York. So get ready to rethink what you thought you knew about this case. I'm Chris. I'm Amy. I'm his wife. (laughs) And this is True Crime Recaps. Every Wednesday, we're bringing you twice the crime in half the time, which means this is like a double feature. So after you get the true story behind the Amityville horror, stick around because I'm going to recap the story of mass murderer Andrew Kehoe for you. In 1927, he killed 45 people, including himself, because he was upset about a $150 school tax in his town of Bath, Michigan. (laughs) Yeah, 38 of the victims were school kids. Now, instead of a suicide note, his final words were painted on a sign nailed to a fence post at his farm. It said, criminals are made, not born. But before we jump into the recaps, we want to take a second to say thank you for spending part of your day with Amy and I. And if you enjoy the show, it would mean so much to us if you would just take a moment afterwards to leave us a five-star review and subscribe, if you haven't already. Last Friday, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. died in prison. He was 69. He spent 47 years there, and he changed his story about what happened that night almost as many times. So let's get into it, starting with a few facts. Six people were murdered in the Amityville house. We know that. 23-year-old Ronnie, or Butch, as his family called him, was the only survivor. He was a known drug addict who's into LSD and heroin, and he liked guns, drinking, and starting fights. He worked with Ronald Sr. at a large Buick dealership the family owned in Brooklyn. Around 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday, November 13, 1974, he walked into Henry's Bar in Amityville and yelled, You gotta help me. I think my mother and father are shot. A small group of friends went with him back to the house on Ocean Avenue. One of them called the police. Someone else called Ronnie's grandfather. And this is where the case starts veering off the rails. His grandfather got to the house about 20 minutes later. The uniformed police were already there, but not the homicide detectives. 
In an article on the website for Shattered Hopes, the true story of the Amityville murders, which is a documentary about the DeFeo family based on Rick Osuna's book, The Night the DeFeos Died, Ryan Katzenbach revealed that Ronnie's grandfather immediately asked one of the patrol officers if he could make a call. When he got on the phone, he noticed the officer was watching him, so he hung up said he dialed the wrong number. But later, the call record showed he'd phoned his brother, Pete DeFeo. Now, Pete was a mobster. He was working for the Genovese crime family in New York City. Pete wasn't a suspect in the murders, but rumors of mafia involvement run deep through this case, as you'll soon learn. It didn't take long for police to set up a sort of temporary headquarters at the neighbor's house, and that's where they first questioned Ronnie. He was the prime suspect from the beginning, although he was the only survivor. But when he was first asked, he said it was a mafia hit. He even gave them a name of a low-level enforcer type. But that guy had an alibi out of state. Then he blamed his sister, Dawn. That's when his grandfather stepped in and told him to stop dragging the family name through the mud, stop blaming his sister, and just admit to the murders. The police reportedly held him along with that with their fists. A day later, Ronnie confessed. He told them, once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. He said he changed his clothes, dumped the rifle off the side of the dock down by their boathouse afterwards. Then he went to work, got high, stopped by a girlfriend's house, then went to the bar and raised the alarm, hoping to make everyone believe he just found his family that way. Decades later, he would tell psychic Jackie Barrett that he turned up the thermostat so the time of death wouldn't be accurate. The medical examiner believed they died around 3.15 a.m., but Ronnie told her they were actually killed around 1.15 a.m. She wrote a book about their conversations in 2012 called The Devil I Know. But just forget for a minute what time they died. Let's talk about why they died and how. It's hard to kill six people in their beds without five of them running away after the first shotgun blast right? And no, the rifle wasn't fitted with any kind of silencer. But Ronnie claimed he'd given them sedatives. But according to the autopsy, that was a lie. The doctor said we did extensive toxicology, not only on the blood and urine, but on all of the organs that we removed. And it turned up zero that there wasn't anything in their body. So when they were prepping for trial, the attorneys wanted to know how loud the rifle really was. Well, it turns out the shots could be heard as far as five blocks away. But when the police spoke to the neighbors, nobody heard gunshots. But they did hear the family dog, Shaggy, barking around 3.15 a.m. Witnesses also said they heard and saw Ron Sr. raging at his wife and kids, with Ronnie Jr. taking most of the hits over the years. Two days after the murders, a doctor examined him in jail and he had bruises on his stomach and his left leg and abrasions on his back. They looked to be about four to seven days old. By 1974, the abuse at the house had gotten so bad that the kids wouldn't have friends over. And according to her boyfriend's affidavit, published on AmityvilleMurders.com, the oldest girl, 18-year-old Dawn, was desperate to run away and go and be with him in Florida. Dawn also had something of a drug and anger problem according to research and interviews done by Rick Osuna, Ryan Katzenbach, and Jackie Barrett, among others. Interestingly, unburned gunpowder was found on the front of her nightgown. Now, that could have been a result of her murder. Ronnie could have been standing very close to her, and gunpowder was transferred from the rifle to her nightgown when he shot. That's what some experts think happened. But how did it get on the front of her clothes when she was found on her stomach? 
The other more controversial theory is Ronnie didn't act alone. So did Don shoot their mother and her brothers and sisters before Ronnie killed her? His trial started on October 14th, 1975, and this multiple shooters theory was introduced by a retired NYPD detective who was acting as an investigator for the defense. He pointed out that the second bullet removed from Louise DeFeo didn't come from Ronnie's rifle. Ronnie had directed police to a pillowcase filled with clothing, rifle cartridges, and holsters for the rifle and a handgun. That's where he dumped it in a sewer drain in Brooklyn. But why did he get rid of a handgun holster if he was the only shooter using the rifle? That made documentary filmmaker Ryan Katzenbach think that the missing handgun might be in the water off the boathouse where the rifle was found. That's where police had found a second bloody pillowcase in a garbage can near the water. He hired divers to search for it, and in 2012, sure enough, they found part of what looks like a handgun. They turned it over to the Suffolk County Police Crime Lab. On the stand, the private investigator also suggested that the family hadn't been asleep like the original story made out. As proof, he pointed out that Mark DeFeo was found face down on his stomach like the other victims, but he was in a wheelchair at the time thanks to a bad football injury, and he had to sleep on his back. So... Was he forced to lay on his stomach? The PI thought Ron Sr. and Don may have been shot somewhere else and moved into their beds. The medical examiner corroborated the multiple shooter theory, and even the prosecutor admitted that Ronnie probably had an accomplice. So, was that person Don? Well, Ronnie never stopped saying so, although his story did change in other ways over the years. His trial lasted for seven weeks. In November 1975, a jury found him guilty of six counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison to be served concurrently. I told you the mafia has bizarre roots in this story. Well, let me get back to that for a second. In 1986, he did an interview from Attica with Newsday. He stuck to his claim that Don was the shooter, but explained that he took the blame because he was afraid his great-uncle that mobster, Pete DeFeo, and his mother's father, another man with mob connections, would have him killed. He also told Newsday he was married with a little girl at the time of the murders. And the only reason he was even in the Amityville house instead of at home in New Jersey with his wife, Geraldine, was because his mother had called him asking him to come out to the house and break up a fight between Don and Ron Sr. He also said he had an alibi, Geraldine's brother. Richard, said he came with him to the house that night. The only thing is, Geraldine didn't have a brother named Richard, and the question of whether or not they were really married at the time is debatable. See, Geraldine and Ronnie met in 1969, and she told author Rick Osuna, yes, they were married in 1970. Their daughter was born in 1974. But if you checked their 1993 divorce records, they would tell you they met in 1985 and were married in 1989. But according to his book, The Night the DeFeos Died, the mystery of whether or not they were married when the murders happened was on purpose. Geraldine had family ties to the Lombardi crime family. When they heard the cops were looking into a female accomplice, she said Ronnie's great uncle Pete and her family worked together to make that marriage certificate disappear. And she was told she had to disappear along with it in order, you know, to keep herself and her kids safe. So the marriage in 1989 was actually their second ceremony, according to Geraldine. She died in 2015. 
1990, Ronnie filed a 440 motion to have his conviction vacated. Typically, the grounds for a 440 motion is ineffective legal counsel, which brings us to that claim that the voices told him to murder his family. So when Ronnie was first arrested, his mother's father paid for the private investigator and a private lawyer, a guy named Jacob Siegfried. He's the one who first suggested an insanity defense. But according to Rikosuna's research, Ronnie fought the idea. When his grandfather's money ran out, he went with a court-appointed attorney, William Weber. Now, he's the guy who ultimately brokered the deal for the Amityville horror book and movie. But we're not quite there yet. First, you have to hear the story Ronnie gave Weber that led to the Amityville legend as we know it. He said he fell asleep on the basement couch that night watching a war movie. When he woke up, the TV and lights were off, but he thought he heard his family talking, like conspiring against him. Then he said a female with black hands holding a rifle came into the room and kicked him. He thought it was his sister, Dawn. But by 1990, to support his 440 motion, Ronnie continued to point the finger at Don, but this time he added a new character, a mystery shooter who he said killed his mother and father, then ran out of the house before he could get a good look at him. And again, he said his wife's brother was there and could vouch for him. The judge pointed out that he'd signed a detailed confession, saying that not only was he living at the house on Ocean Avenue, but that he usually carpooled to work with his father, but on November 12th, he'd called in sick. His girlfriend also testified that she started dating him in June of 1974, and he'd even been at her house after the murders. I'd say there was something to that insanity defense, and it might not have been so made up as Ronnie liked to say it was. The judge turned down his 440 motion, but Ronnie didn't give up. In various interviews throughout the years, he went back and forth between saying, I don't know what happened, I didn't have any control over that night, to blaming his sister and various other accomplices for the murders. For example, at his parole hearing in 1999, Ronnie said he was down in the basement with a friend when they heard a muffled sound like a gunshot. When they got to the second floor, he saw his sister Allison dead in her bed. Then he went upstairs to his sister Dawn's room. When she saw him, she said, oh my God, Butch, you're not supposed to be here. Remembering that Butch was his nickname in the family. And then she grabbed the rifle and aimed at him before he got it away from her and shot her. He also told the parole board that he had no idea who shot his parents and that he only heard the one shot before he killed Don, according to the hearing transcript published on AmityvilleMurders.com. In the year 2000, Ronnie wrote Rick Osuna a letter building off the story he told the parole board. He claimed that he and Don, along with two friends, got high in the basement and hatched a plan to kill their abusive father. Around 1 a.m., they went to their parents' room. One of his friends had what he described as a 38 Colt Python. He and Don had the rifle and his other friend acted as a lookout. He shot Ron Sr. first, but the first bullet didn't kill him, so he shot him again when he started to come at them. Then he shot his mother once, and his friend shot her for the second time and killed her. Which would explain the different bullet that the police found. He said Don used his rifle to kill the other kids so as to eliminate them as witnesses, when Ronnie left the house to chase down one of his friends who ran away when the shooting started. He said he was so angry at her for killing his brothers and sisters that he knocked her onto the bed and shot her. Rick Osuna tried contacting these accomplices to see if they'd verify Ronnie's story. Because who wouldn't want to admit to being there at a murder, a very famous murder? But hey, but one of the men 
was supposedly in the witness protection program for something unrelated, and the other man refused to speak with him at all, and then he died in 2001. But in the letter Ronnie wrote, he said it was cold-blooded murder, period, no ghosts, no demons, just three people in which I was one. Hmm. That doesn't make for a very good horror story, though, does it? Thirteen months later, the Lutz family of five bought the Amityville house for only $80,000. About a month after Ronnie was convicted, they moved in on December 18th, 1975. They moved out 28 days later on January 13th, 1976. They took only what they could carry and they went to stay with Kathy Lutz's mother before they moved across the country to California. And they claimed that the house was possessed, but the dark forces had followed them out. Just super scary, but I guess that would explain why no one has ever had any issues in the house since then. According to AmityvilleMurders.com, Ronnie's attorney sent a book contract to the Lutzes in March 1976, proposing a split of the proceeds with a writer named Paul Hoffman. Ultimately, the Lutzes didn't sign, and instead they went with a different writer, Jay Anson, and a more lucrative contract. Jay's 1977 book is the one we know, The Amityville Horror, and the movie that followed was famously based on those 28 days in the house. However, Ronnie says that the Lutzes and his lawyer were putting together this idea during his trial, even before they bought the house. Of course, as we all know by now, Ronnie wasn't super clear about what the truth was, so can we really trust anything he says? No. Definitely Probably, maybe not, because in September 1979, his attorney confirmed to People magazine that the book was a hoax, saying, quote, we created this horror story over many bottles of wine. Hmm. Of course, the Lutzes were suing him at the time, so. But in any case, the Lutzes insisted it was mostly true. But protecting the story came at a cost. Their lawsuit against Weber was one of 14 different Amityville-related lawsuits they were involved in over the years, according to HistoryVersusHollywood.com. They did take a lie detector test in 1979 to prove that they were telling the truth, and they passed. Over the years, they've never wavered from their statements, not even when the Catholic Church denied that the house ever famously told that priest to get out when he tried to bless it. That priest is also a controversial figure in this story. He first said the whole haunting thing did happen. He did a lot of press with that story, and then he said it didn't. So, after George and Kathy Letts died in the early 2000s, their son Daniel appeared on a documentary called My Amityville Horror, and he insisted that the book, yes, it was mostly true, and their experience in the house basically ruined his life, and he still has nightmares, which would be about what you'd expect someone to say if they lived in a haunted house. Of course, that's also what you'd expect to hear from someone peddling a haunted hoax. So, and then there's that super creepy picture taken inside the house in 1976. George Lutz revealed it on the Merv Griffin show in 1979, which admittedly does make it sound like a publicity stunt. But lordy, this picture is creepy. If you're listening to the podcast, I'll I'll describe it to you. Picture a little boy in shadow peeking out of a doorway, but his eyes are ghost white. Yeah. According to History versus Hollywood, the photographer was Glenn Campbell, who was at the house with paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. The picture was snapped as part of a series of shots taken with an infrared automatic camera at night. 
Believers say the ghost boy was the spirit of John DeFeo. Non-believers think it's another investigator that was there that night. Personally, I'm a believer. But what do you think? Today, the house is still there, but the address has been changed to fool tourists. It also looks a lot different. Those creepy eye-like windows, yeah, they're just now normal square windows, and the pool was filled in. It was sold to the current owners in March 2017 for $605,000, according to property records reported by the New York Post. And that's your recap, but don't go anywhere because Chris has a whole other recap for you right after this. So... <clears throat> how yeah. crazy was that well that the whole story is 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 completely outrageous because there's there's so many different theories of of, of how the murders happened mm-hmm. you know what i mean but the the thing early on that stuck out to me was when he was first being interviewed by police and he was talking about you know he was just telling what he thought was was happening and and and, and that his grandfather stepped in and said hey stop Stop doing that, you know, stop doing that with the family and just, just admit to it mm-hmm. and his mob connection and everything. And he just, then he, that's when he started to kind of take the blame for it. So that sticks, that's a huge red flag to me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's so weird because like he's had so many different stories over the years. It's kind of ridiculous, but in the one constant in all of them was that it was his sister and him, mm-hmm. which just kind of makes sense because. I kind the of boyfriend. Be- she want. She was also being abused. Like she was also the br- get getting yeah, the right, brunt of his right, anger. Right. Not and as her- much as him. It sounds like. Yeah. But but still. But but I kind of almost at the end. You know the 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 I, maybe the more believable thing is that you know he when he was running after his friend and Dawn killed the other siblings mm-hmm. and then he reacted to that mm-hmm. in a fit of rage at the moment. You know that. Could be that could make sense. I don't, I don't know, know if I if I said this if I put this in like the whole recap. But he said to that author Jackie Barrett later that he wasn't planning to shoot Dawn, but when he, even though he came back in and he found out that yeah she was yeah. like she'd killed the other kids, you know, yeah. so as not to leave witnesses, but he still wasn't planning to shoot her. But then she aimed the gun at him. Oh right, and yeah, he yeah. was like they wrestled for it and he shot her. So yeah, I think I did say that. You did say yeah, that. Yeah, so that was that's a possibility too. That makes for more sure. sense because yeah. like, but he's not. He's still a killer. Like, I'm not trying to say yeah, he's yeah, not no, a killer. No, he totally no. is. But I mean, <clears throat> everybody really. I mean, the medical examiner, even the prosecutor, again, like, do believe like that there yeah. was another another shooter. shooter. Yeah, I mean, finding the other bullet yeah. from a 38 in the in the wife, mm-hmm. you know that. That's hard to explain away any other any yeah. other way, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, that that definitely lends to the idea that there was another shooter, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, it's really it's a bizarre story because I had no idea about any of this. I mean, all I knew well, is that. Yeah. Well, everybody knows the story of of the haunting. I guess for me, I always knew that there was this story of this haunted house when I was a kid when this movie first came out, but I didn't really understand what the what had happened in the house to cause the haunting. Yeah. You know what I mean? I yes. get, I don't think I really ever understood that whole whole thing. And then the other question that 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 enters my mind now is the is the question, you know, especially with the priest saying, "Yes, this all happened." And then saying, "No, it didn't happen." And you know, and we made it all yeah. up over some wine and you know, it's like, "It did it really happen or I maybe or know. is it an embellishment? Did did something happen and then they kind of made up this whole thing or you, well, you know what I mean?" Yeah. What I don't understand and what I've tried to like research and figure out and I don't know that I've really even gotten a clear answer is how the freaking hell the Lutzes even got connected with their 
with Ronnie's lawyer. It's like you buy a house from this murderer. Oh, yeah. And then I don't even understand. Like, did you guys know each other before? But actually, really quick. (laughs) So what I've managed to like kind of just glean. But again, a lot of it is like from Ronnie telling people different things. And Mm -hmm. so it's hard to tell like what to believe. But that in that book, Jackie Barrett's book, she he said he told her that he was aware of George Lutz even before they bought the house. Like he kind of knew him from around and that he was, he didn't like, he was kind of like a shady character. And when he, when his lawyer came to him and said that the Lutzes wanted to buy their house, he was like, by his house, he was like, what? And then, well, it sounds I mean, like they got so a good, bizarre. and they paid $80,000 for it, right? Yeah. I mean, Which, of course, back then it was different. I mean, that's obviously, that's a different time. Yeah. It's a different time, but, but it's still not a lot of money but a, but for a, a house but, on the freaking water. Yeah. With in a pool New York. and a boathouse yeah. and everything like that. Yeah. It was amazing. I mean, I, I, I suppose even back then that was a discounted price, apparently. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. 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 And that's the whole thing. Also, I, <clears throat> I mentioned, okay, psychic and the author Jackie Barrett. So she developed this friendship with Ronnie over the years and he gave her power of attorney. <laughs> now her book came out in 2012. So I don't know if this is still the case, but in the book, he said, Ronnie said like he was suffering with illnesses in the book. Now right now, as like while we're taping this, they don't know they're doing an autopsy to figure out like what actually killed him you know, last week. But in the book, he was already suffering with a variety of illnesses. Seemed like something with his lungs or so Hmm. maybe it's something having to do with that. But he told Jackie that he didn't, that he wanted to be cremated and that he did not want to be buried with the rest of the family. I'm sure they don't want him buried with them either. But, but yeah. That is an interesting point. Yeah. 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 So I wonder if she's still in charge of that or how that's even works or how, Hmm. where he's going to, End up, end up yeah. out of curiosity. But anyway, yeah. Wow. Demons, man. Scary. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe the ho- maybe it was a hoax. You know, maybe yeah. it wasn't, but it could very well be. How? I, I, I mean, know. I don't. I don't know. Well, I think I think that if even if it's even if if it's a hoax, if it's not a hoax, I think either way now, the fact that there's been a movie and a book and a successful story. And a question as to whether or not it happened or not. It's it's a successful event. You well, know, yeah. You know, you but know I mean? do you think that demons exist? Like, do you think they're real? Sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't have to think about it. No. Hell yes. Um, I mean, you. I don't know. It's uh, it's hard to say. I've been spooked to things before. I mean, but but then you hear about the DeFeo murders and Andrew and Andrew Kehoe, by the way, the mass murderer. I want to tell you about, and and you have to wonder. How could a human being be so evil? It makes more sense to think they're possessed by demons. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's such an understatement, but absolutely, yes. Possessed. It's the yep. only answer. It's the only explanation. People are so evil. Anyway, I'll let you tell your story. All right. <laughs> Andrew Kehoe was a farmer responsible for the worst school mass murder in U.S. history to this day. Because of him, 44 people were killed on May 18, 1927, in Bath, Michigan. In 1924, the town was intent on building a new, ultra-modern-grade school, but it came with a construction budget to match. Andrew was known as a smart man who was careful with money, so when he ran for school board treasurer, he was elected. The truth was much more sinister than the people in the community knew. Andrew owned a 185-acre farm outside of Bath with his wife, Nellie. 
They used to go to a Catholic church in town, but he refused to pay membership dues, so they stopped going. He and Nellie didn't have any kids, and the thought of paying more in taxes for the new school's construction is what drove him to run for treasurer in hopes that he could control the spending from his seat on the board. That's where he met Superintendent Emery Hike. According to the New York Post, the superintendent was beloved by the town, and he was intent on improving the school's status, which led to a yearly tax assessment of $150, or the equivalent of $2,300 today. In his book about the massacre called Maniac, The Bath School Disaster and the Birth of the Modern Mass Killer, author Harold Schechter wrote that the two men openly loathed one another. Andrew made it his business to veto any raises for the man, cut down his vacation time, and avoid giving him his check every week. The rest of the board grew to dislike him. When he didn't get his way, he'd try adjourning the meetings or he'd walk out in a huff. They thought of him as the kind of person who kept a mental list of all the real or imagined wrongs done to him, and then he'd make sure he got you back for whatever you'd done. And he didn't limit himself to holding a grudge against humans only. He once beat a horse to death for not pulling hard enough, and he bragged about shooting a neighbor's annoying dog. While he was on the school board, he was appointed the Bath Township Clerk in 1925. But in the spring of 1926, he very publicly lost his bid for re-election to the town clerk office and his run for justice of the peace. To make things even worse, his wife had been suffering with tuberculosis for months, and the medical bills were cutting into his mortgage payments. That spring, he got a foreclosure notice on his farm. According to Harold Schechter's book, he blamed the school and the superintendent. He actually told the process server, if it hadn't been for that school tax, I might have paid off the mortgage. So he decided to get revenge on the whole town. Over the next year, he accumulated a thousand pounds of dynamite and other bomb-making paraphernalia. He used his school treasurer position to slowly and methodically wrap the bombs in wire mesh and attach them to the ceiling in the school's basement. The whole thing was set to detonate at 9.45 a.m. on May 18, 1927. That morning, he killed his wife with a blow to the head. When her body was found later, there was a stack of unpaid hospital bills on top of her. He set up dynamite around his property and made sure not even his animals would be able to escape the blast. Then he drove his truck to the school. It, too, was rigged with dynamite and shrapnel. When he got there, he saw that only half the bombs he'd set up under the school had actually detonated. 38 students were killed, and that number might have been more than doubled if his plan had gone the way he wanted it to. But he wasn't done yet. According to Colleen Bricard's book, It Happened in Michigan, Remarkable Events That Shaped History, Andrew called the superintendent over to his truck, then used his gun to shoot at what looked like piles of junk in his back seat, triggering the bombs and killing himself, the superintendent, the local postmaster, and a retired farmer, and a little eight-year-old boy named Cleo Clayton, who survived the school bombing only to be killed by flying shrapnel off of Andrew's exploding truck. In hindsight, there were red flags that something very strange was going on with him. For one thing, he'd gone to school for electrical engineering in St. Louis, and he made a very poor farmer. Harold Schechter wrote about his tendency to wear a suit while he farmed his property. 
His neighbors remembered that he was obsessed with staying clean and would change his clothes often when they got dirty. Of course, his nonchalant attitude about animal cruelty was a huge sign of trouble to come, and he might even have been a murderer long before that day. Apparently, his stepmother, who he did not like, was killed in a mysterious kitchen fire in 1911. Today, the site of the old school building is marked with a memorial listing all the names of the people who died there that day, with the exception of his own name, of course. He's buried in an unmarked grave in Michigan, and his wife is buried with her family under her maiden name. And that's your recap of the Bath School disaster as it's come to be known. Thanks for spending some time with us today. If you like getting twice the crime in half the time, please take a second to hit subscribe and give this podcast a five-star rating and let us know what you think in the comments. Until next time, take care.